The following is a recording for Reed Blakemore with the Atlantic Council of the U.S. on Thursday, June 8, 2017 at 1 p.m. Central Time. Excuse me, everyone. We will now begin the call. Please be aware that each of your lines is now in a listen-only mode. At the conclusion of our panelist opening remarks, we will open the floor for questions. At that time, instructions will be provided on how to ask a question. I would now like to turn the conference over to Mr. Joshua Corman, who will introduce the call and begin our discussion. Mr. Corman, you may begin. Thank you. I'd like to uh, welcome everyone today for this pretty important topic. It's uh, not only important as uh, healthcare is a very large portion of our nation's GDP, it's also where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. Uh, and we took this task force quite seriously. Uh, this is a, uh, a readout of our recently launched task force report that came out on Friday. Uh, this, re this report was asked for by Congress, part of CISA, the Computer Information Sharing Act of 2015, and asked for uh, a one-year task force for uh, cyber risk to the healthcare industry and the many facets of healthcare. Um, I'm very pleased in this uh, public uh, call to include some subset of those 20 distinguished uh, members of the task force. Uh, from, I'll, I'll go through their names right now. Uh, from the, as a co-chair from the Health and Human Services, we have Emery Shulak. Uh, he's the Chief Information Security Officer uh, in the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, and I'm very pleased that you could join us today, especially after testifying to Congress this morning on this very report. Uh, we also have Mark Jarrett, uh, MD, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Quality Officer for Northwell Health, and he's a professor of medicine at Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine. We are additionally joined by Jackie Monson, uh, who is the VP and Chief Privacy and Information Security Officer for Sutter Health, to, to bring a healthy perspective and integrated health Networks. Uh, we have Terry Rice, um, who's the VP of IT Risk Management and Chief Information Security Officer at Merck, but also serves on the board for the National Healthcare ISAC and brings a, a wealth of perspective there. Uh, next, we have Christine Sublet, uh, Chief Information Security Officer and Head of Compliance at Augmentic and Sublet Consulting. And did I catch everybody? One of my distinguished panelists there. All right. So we're going to generally discuss, I'm going to have a few opening remarks here. Um, this uh, task force, we, we sometimes joked that uh, being on the healthcare task force was hazardous for our health, but uh, we, we, to a person, they brought tremendous wealth of knowledge. Many of us knew that we had a strong hunch for what our deep and most challenging uh, issues were in overall healthcare, but I think everyone was pretty surprised that when we compared notes, that the, that we, these issues went much further down the rabbit hole than any of us expected. And right from our very first meeting, I think uh, we were punctuated that while this was asked for in December of 2015, our first task force meeting uh, in person was in April, and it, it was hot off the heels of uh, Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital having to shut down patient care and divert ambulances to other facilities due to an accidental compromise of, of ransomware, not even a targeted attack per se. Um, and while it was uh, essentially uh, ransomware locks up uh, files, the cascading effects of those compromised systems from a single vulnerability in a single device from a single manufacturer was able to affect patient care. And to bookend this, this year-plus-long journey that we've been on as a team, 
while we started with um, Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital outage, uh, we ended with the WannaCry attacks, again, an undirected and untargeted attack, leveraging a known vulnerability in Microsoft in this particular case. But it had the devastating impact specifically on healthcare in that in the UK government through the national uh, the NHS systems, uh, 65 at least 65 UK hospitals shut down patient care and had delayed or degraded services as a result of this incidental compromise. And what it really punctuates um, for an already intense year of very diverse stakeholders talking to hundreds of healthcare practitioners, dozens of diverse. Um, health delivery professional organizations and, in, and different uh, stakeholder groups, uh, several in-person meetings, several phone calls and subcommittee groups, um, was that our over-dependence on undependable things uh, could have a profound impact on public safety, human life, uh, and since this is a large part of our economy, uh, up to a fifth or sixth of our GDP could be hit, and any sort of crisis of confidence in the public could uh, trigger undesirable reactions, such as a retreat from uh, otherwise superior uh, breakthroughs. And uh, speaking for myself, I think um, I was incredibly impressed with, to a person, the members of the task force who brought their passion, fought for their perspective uh, in a collegial way, and went above and beyond what was expected um, to make sure that we rose to this occasion. We weren't sure how popular some of these findings would be. We wanted to be forthright, candid, and honest, and present options and ground truth to our congressional stakeholders and other parts of government. But we also wanted to uh, in ensure that were there to be a high consequence failure in healthcare, that this document could serve as a blueprint for what to do about it. Uh, none of us wanted to see something like WannaCry and the near miss that it represented. Um, and we do feel like we got very, very lucky, but we can't bank on that luck forever. And I think now more than ever, the urgency that the situation commands is that we, we looking for some uncomfortable responses to these uncomfortable truths, and we capitalize on this moment. So I'm really uh, delighted to have several of the, the 20 task force members with me on this call. Um, in the Cyber Statecraft Initiative, our focus and, and differentiated research agenda has been to be on cyber safety, raising the alarm without being alarmist. It's been a passion of mine for the last four years through a grassroots group of white hat hackers called IamTheCavalry.org. And through that work, we were able to bring a hacker eye view and uh, the voice of the white hat research community uh, to these medical professionals and industry healthcare professionals. And we want to give a glimpse at some of those findings um, and some of the uncomfortable truths and responses that we recommended. I think we were quite bold, and I think uh, many of us saw this maybe as the finish line for the task force, but the starting line for things to come. Uh, before I hand it to the group, um, while we were asked six things, from Congress to specifically answer as an act of law. Um, we also recognized towards the end that uh, there wasn't a clean way to maybe articulate some of the gravity of the problem statement. And early in the report, we did put together a very brief infographic um, to try to punctuate five uncomfortable truths. I'm not gonna read it verbatim here, but I'll summarize uh, some of the things we, we pulled together to really set the tone. And uh, again, this was done before WannaCry, which is a huge wake up call. It's also an example where uh, HHS uh, agency-wide really stepped up to take a leadership role on the incident response, on commuting phone calls, on gathering information on what was happening with WannaCry, what could be done about it. And I think um, I'm hoping that a lot of the work we did in test, the task force lays the groundwork for a, a more thoughtful, planful, rapid response to future incidents. 
Uh, so this graphic is a thermometer. At the top it says healthcare cybersecurity is in critical condition. You can notice we didn't mince words. Uh, and it's, we really captured five of the most uh, concerning uncomfortable truths, and, and one of which is possibly the most foundational, which is a severe lack of security talent in modern healthcare. Uh, that the majority of these health delivery organizations lack a single qualified uh, full-time security professional. And part of the reason for that is um, we do track, while we don't have a census on, uh, an accurate census on the number of qualified security professionals in healthcare, what we do know is that the overwhelming majority of the health delivery organizations in the U.S. are small, medium, and rural. In fact, the top two categories are nine or fewer employees or 20 or fewer employees. And to extrapolate that out, um, it's, not a, it's, a, it's not an unsafe estimate to say about 85% of these health delivery organizations may lack a single qualified security person to act upon many of the other recommendations we have here. And that's going to be one we're going to have to tackle, and there's no single fix to that, but we make several clever recommendations, and we hope to jump into some of those on how we might scale the existing security talent within healthcare while we farm and grow and distribute more robust uh, coverage so that they can act upon the cyber safety and cyber hygiene needs of, of modern healthcare. Number two is that there's a, a pronounced amount of legacy and unsupported operating systems and old technology in the healthcare environment. It's not uncommon to encounter Windows XP or even older Windows operating systems in the clinical environment. Given that the long time to live uh, and the very long protracted times it takes to get things approved through uh, FDA and other means, so they're often trying to defend, harder to defend, unpatchable or unsupported systems um, well past their expiration date. Number three, we tend to see a level of, of over-connectivity or premature connectivity in the health environment. Part of that is a lack of security talent, talent to properly do segmentation and isolation, but the net result is that we have large, flat, unsegmented networks in many cases, so that a compromise of one system can have a cascading effect to affect the entire healthcare facility. Uh, and in, in, a, in some way, this is an unintended consequence of the meaningful use incentives from the HITECH Act, which with the best of intentions and with tremendous benefit, took us from paper records to electronic health records. The challenge being you took systems that were never designed or threat modeled to be ever connected to anything else, and we've kind of forced them to be connected to everything else through some incentives. Uh, so that is one of the things that compounds the, the full, full reach of compromise and then the, the fourth of five uncomfortable truths is that a vulnerability can impact patient care, as we saw with Hollywood Presbyterian. It was a single Java flaw and a single library and a single device. Uh, and in the case of um, this most recent spate of 65 UK hospitals or more, uh, that was a, a known vulnerability in Microsoft um, that had a fix available since March. But for all the reasons aforementioned, uh, we hadn't sufficiently fixed those systems uh, and it's a wicked problem to try to look at contributors as to why. And then lastly, um, if, it's, uh, if we have a severe lack of security talent, they're trying to defend older, less secure systems that are overconnected to each other in the outside world, a single flaw in a single device can affect patient care by either delaying or degrading delivery of care. Uh, the, the, the really sad news is that known vulnerabilities are an epidemic in this space. Historically, it's not uncommon to see a single device have over a thousand security vulnerabilities in it. Uh, in fact, we specifically mentioned one here that had four, over 1,400 uh, in it. Now, that's, that might sound like a scary story, but I encourage people to go look into the links provided because that manufacturer chose to fix them all, and just updating seven packages removed those 1,400 
vulnerabilities. So we know that this is, uh, we can be smart about the 80-20 rule here, but uh, the combination and confluence of these and other issues means that uh, we have enjoyed a very long period of obscurity where uh, adversaries weren't really targeting healthcare. But given the nature of our over-dependence on potentially undependable things, we have created a condition such that the actions of any outlier or accidents and adversaries could have a profound impact. And we all believe in the promise of precision medicine and the promise of connected technology. And we know that these advances are improving the quality of care. We don't want to scare anyone away from quality care. Uh, we just know that if we're cavalier about the peril, um, then we could have a crisis confidence that could postpone or delay or degrade our ability to trust these. In fact, I'm here in Arizona at a first-ever, first-of-a-kind cyber simulation where we have physicians in a training facility who are going to get some cybersecurity injects throughout the day to capture how they react and how gracefully or, or ungracefully they react to these uh, cybersecurity root causes of failure. And I think preparedness is the watchword and, and, and a thoughtful, planful response. So we don't want to be overwhelmed or paralyzed by fear. What we want to do is full-on recognize the nature of these challenges and make sure that our recommendations in this context are aggressive, are bold, are thoughtful, and get serious consideration. Uh, as many of us feel we got lucky with WannaCry, um, now that the, the, the bell has been rung, uh, it's more visible to other accidents and adversaries how fragile we are, and now is a perfect time for us to, to dig into these recommendations and make sure we prioritize them so we can maintain the promise while mitigating the peril. So with that, um, let's shift to some questions with our, uh, our subset of the task force. Uh, Emery, since you were the, the government co-chair, um, I would love to give the floor to you first to talk about the experience, the philosophy approach, and uh, any other initial remarks. I know you had to do a congressional uh, testimony this morning for House Energy and Commerce, but what would you like people to know before they read this report? Yeah, um, you know, I guess, I'll, you know, I want to thank, um, you know, the people online, um, and specifically I want to thank the 21 task force members, including the 17 from private sector organizations who contributed to making this report possible based on their passion to improve the sector. And I think, you know, a lot of the conversation that we started this morning with the um, testimony as well as the report itself I, you know, I think the one thing that is kind of overlooked in what we've talked about so far is that, you know, there are six imperatives, 27 recommendations, 104 action items, and, you know, the testimony this morning focused on what is HHS doing. And what I want to highlight today is that roughly half of the action items from that report are focused on what industry could be doing. And I think, um, you know, we're obviously going to, at the department, continue the conversation of, you know, where HHS is reaching out, where they can help coordinate what they can do and, and look at for possible improvements based on recommendations from the report and how we can prioritize those. But I think, you know, the, you know, the audience probably needs to be thinking is, you know, roughly half of these um, action items fall squarely in the industry focus side. You know, how do you get engaged? How do you lead? How do you drive change in the industry? Because the task force members really did feel that, you know, some of these challenges really are about establishing best practices, voluntary standards, um, and a movement forward in terms of how to address some of these um, pieces of the puzzle. So, you know, I want to make sure people really think about you know, it's like that somebody isn't here to just do this and solve this for us. 
um, but that we each have to engage throughout the process, um, both with the government and on the private side, to make this successful. So, you know, I think it's pretty clear from the task force that, you know, they see this as a shared effort um, and that cybersecurity is no longer treated as an IT issue but as a patient safety issue. And going forward, we all have to work together to be successful. So I don't want to drag on since I know we have a number of speakers today, but, um, you know, that's the one thing I'd really say is from industry, how do you guys engage and how do you want to drive um, change uh, going forward? Thanks. Uh, thank you, Emery. Um, so I, I have a number of questions that people were dying to ask of each of you. Um, I think I'll start somewhat arbitrarily, but... Uh, Given that, uh, Terry Rice, you, you serve as uh, one of the board members of the NHISAC, of the National Healthcare ISAC, and uh, you, you tend to get a, an industry-wide view. I think one of the things that was, you know, maybe surprising over the last year is maybe, you know, even though we make fun of this line that security through obscurity is no security at all, uh, healthcare has enjoyed relative obscurity. We've, we've, we know we've been prone, we know we're prey, but we had... Uh, prior lacked sufficient predators. Uh, I think that all changed in, what, in 2016, didn't we go from uh, almost no ransomware to the, the number one attacked industry? What's been the, uh, the NHISAC kind of collective response? Well, thank you, uh, Josh. Um, yeah, there has been a, a significant uptick in incidents, um, they're, they're both by opportunity uh, because of the vulnerabilities you highlighted in the opening remarks as well as threat actors realizing that there is um, either money to be made um, through the theft of uh, information or through uh, the latest ransomware, um, and, and that the sector as a whole tends to be a very weak target. So the uh, NHI SAC um, has been doing a lot to facilitate uh, some of the items that are called out in imperative six around it, uh, information sharing. Uh, we've established a number of mechanisms to bring in intelligence from uh, uh, the governments. We have a very robust relationship with HHS um, and are working with them on the uh, HPIC to be able to pull information from government sources, push out to industry members, but at the same time also collect data from the members of the industry on what they're seeing, um, almost like a neighborhood watch program where if one entity sees I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the signs of an attack, uh, they can share technical information with all of the other 250-plus uh, companies that are part of the ISAC today, and they can actually improve their defenses on the fly in response to that, um, to that uh, threat actor. But that's, that's the baseline. Um, what the ISAC has actually done beyond that is, and it's highlighted in our report as the need for shared services, to help the smallest entities within the healthcare sector. So what we're trying to do is to create uh, both group purchasing opportunities as well as shared services that can be directly provisioned um, to members of the healthcare industry to remediate some of the vulnerabilities, uh, some of the incidents, uh, some of the threats uh, that, they're, that they're dealing with. Mm. Now, uh, general question to the, to the whole group. Um, People are unlikely to read these, this entire report from page from cover to cover uh, unless their their job depends upon it. Uh, what are some of the most uh, surprising uh, uh, findings that we had in the year? Or conversely, what do you think is some of the more bold and, and potentially even controversial recommendations 
that that bubble up that people should maybe uh, zone in on as a, as a first place to look. I know Jackie, you had you uh, went for a pretty controversial and, and bold uh, recommendation for scaling security talent, but uh, who would like to go first? So this is Mark. Um, I'd be glad to talk. I mean, one of the probably one of the more surprising things is one of the testimonies we heard in one of the reports was from critical access hospitals. And right. you know, unlike other industries uh, where you, know, you do not have to have, especially in today's world, you know, bricks and mortar on the ground in healthcare, that is not true. Uh, and critical access hospitals serve an important function in rural America. Uh, yet they are probably least capable, and the one thing we know is it's the weakest link, especially in an interconnected world that we all want with information sharing and healthcare to provide the best care for our patients. It's those weakest links and all those small practices and hospitals that are uh, really what we've learned is, is really the probably the biggest vulnerability rather than just big systems, which tend to be somewhat robust. Uh, and can respond to things and do are able to keep up better than, than these small hospitals. I think that's a major area uh, that we have to be concerned about in the country, as you said in the very beginning, Josh, that has lots of small providers, providers lots of small mom-and-pop shops, so to speak. And the other aspect of that, the fact that part of information sharing and where we're going today, is getting patient involved. Uh, there's a whole revolution of open notes where patients have access to their charts. Uh, well, clearly now uh, we have, mil you know, hundreds of millions of people who may be accessing the system uh, in order to review things, and that gives us new vulnerabilities, which we have to get our uh, hands around very quickly uh, if we want to protect the system. Yeah, I think that was very eye-opening for me, and Fred Trotter, who couldn't join us, has uh, been very focused on a lot of these next-generation and precision medicine and patient-involved data flows, and what what's become clear is there hasn't been the resources or talent to even secure the information and, and help delivery of data across existing trust zones and people who are custodians of that data for a moment, a month, a year, or for the lifetime of the patient. Uh, part of the dual-edged nature of precision medicine is we're going to be increasing the number and variety of trust zones that the data uh, further adding level of difficulty, and I feel like that's going to be something that could be a fantastic follow-up to the, the great body of work here is additional look at, uh, threat models and analysis of, you know, essentially the lifespan of your patient health care information in this newer model, which has the, the ability to add machine learning and a lot more insight more quickly, but also a, a far more uh, wicked and complex problem to try to solve for. Uh, who would like to go next? This is Jackie. I'll go next, just um, emphasizing some of the things that Mark said. But I think in order to, as he talked about a lot, the small provider practices and the small rural hospitals that really make the entire healthcare sector vulnerable because we're all now interconnected, you know, with the initiatives on precision med medicine and interoperability, I think, you know, a couple of bold areas that I think are absolutely necessary, one of them is the broad idea of looking at all of the regulations, both at the federal and state level, that fall into this area, whether it's cybersecurity or HIPAA privacy or security or other things, and finding a way to harmonize those laws. I think oftentimes healthcare organizations, large or small, are really focused on meeting the regulatory requirements 
and oftentimes we're challenged with the fact that they conflict and that it's really expensive. And when we look at that, because it's so expensive, we're not actually dealing with the highest risk or vulnerabilities that we have and aren't addressing them because we're worried about addressing the floor level, which is the regulations. And more specifically, the recommendation on stark and anti-kickback and trying to obtain an exception similar to what occurred with meaningful use to be able to find another avenue to help these small physician practices or small hospitals get the security talent that they can't obtain themselves because they either don't have enough resources or enough funds to get them. And then I think the other bold one is just related to the the calling out the lack of talent that we have and the need for the right talent at the right level for the organization to make sure that they're addressing it. What might be right for Sutter Health as far as a security professional might be completely different than what a small rural hospital needs that might only have one individual doing security for the entire organization. That person is going to have to have deep technical knowledge in addition to leadership and oversight around security. And I think those two things were probably some of our, our boldest requests, but absolutely necessary to really moving the ball and addressing the cybersecurity risk. Yeah, and given that many of our members uh, on, the, on the call now um, may not come from healthcare, um, and without giving a tutorial on Stark uh, and why we want an amendment, uh, essentially part of, if, if I recall this correctly, part of the idea is you have some qualified security talent at maybe a larger um, provider like a Sutter, but many of the, the health delivery organizations you interface with or, or have shared risk from, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to, to lawfully share that knowledge and guidance uh, with those folks that A, can't afford it, and B, represent a, a risk to your own interests. Um, so we had numerous recommendations and ideas captured and shared in, in the task force and even in the final document, but this was one of the ways to maybe share the scant resources we have with smaller uh, organizations living below the security poverty line. Did I get it somewhat right? Yeah, let me provide an example. So, for example, if, if at Sutter Health we're connected to around 5,000 physicians that see patients in their clinical office and then also see patients in our hospitals, and if we wanted to provide them technology around cybersecurity today to make sure they're as secure as we are, we would essentially violate Stark and Anna kickback, and so we wouldn't have the ability to do that. The law would prohibit it. Mm. Okay. Now, um, before we leave this topic of scaling security talent, um, we had uh, many ideas on this. This is one of those wicked problems there was no silver bullet for. There may not even be silver buckshot for. Uh, but some of the ideas explored, or at least unearthed, are there, there is the use of a virtual chief information security officer, so one qualified professional who shares time across some number, some reasonable number of facilities that's emerged in other sectors that could be tapped into here, if, if appropriate, as a stopgap while we build up more robust and, and more credible solutions. There we did encounter in Illinois an interesting approach where a bunch of small and medium and rural uh, organizations pooled money together, started a nonprofit, hired a chief information security officer to, to service their collective needs. Um, and that was uh, an interesting grassroots private sector local innovation. 
um, to have some, at least someone that could be the Sherpa guide to maybe answer questions and guide um, the indigenous talent in biomed services or IT at the other facilities. Um, we have encountered, and I think Terry, I learned this from you, that the Singapore government does subsidize some level of cybersecurity talent in their healthcare. Granted, it's a smaller nation, but they, they were able to justify that cost and investment. And too late to put it in the actual report, one of our colleagues from the support team pointed out that these critical access hospitals of 25 beds or less already are deliberately geographically distributed in the nation, get government funds, and that may in fact be a natural place for us to try to incentivize or subsidize maybe some sort of Teach for America-like program to drive some uh, localized uh, talent into at least a regional distribution. There's a number of ideas that we touch upon and there's a lot more investigation to be done, uh, but it's such a foundational gap because if we have other recommendations that are excellent in the report, like doing a self-assessment against the NIST cybersecurity framework, well, even doing such a self-assessment requires some prerequisite familiarity with cybersecurity and to do that well and sufficiently, um, this is why it's such a foundational gap. Uh, why don't we, uh, is, does anyone else have anything on the, the talent workforce uh, challenges um, before I, I drop a, a controversial element on that? I just have one thing to add. This is Christine, and, um, you know, I primarily work with um, health tech organizations, lots of small to mid-size, early to mid-stage companies, and they have a lot of the same challenges with resourcing that small to mid-size uh, and rural HDOs have. And uh, we are seeing success with utilizing um, shared or third-party CISOs or other type of security resources, um, you know, across multiple companies to um, try and meet the, the security needs for our companies, but also, you know, the requirements for the HDOs where they're trying to sell their products. Indeed. Uh, in fact, I I haven't heard the latest statistics, but when we were first getting to know the Food and Drug Administration uh, through our uh, Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices, um, we had learned that the overwhelming majority of uh, device makers had 11 or fewer employees. So we tend to think of these massive mega corporations, but a lot of these innovations come from very small uh, teams, and if, if they're about that size, the likelihood that one of them is a security architect is significantly lower. Um, so one of the, the, the things we, we spent a long time on um, and never quite came to grips with is I, I, I'd like to phrase this maybe imperfectly that back to the, the, the dearth of security talent, um, this was never meant to be a pointing finger or a lack of empathy for these uh, very cash-strapped organizations. So it's really that there's two truths in tension, at least two truths. One is that healthcare, especially small, medium, and rural, are operating on razor-thin margins, if, if at all, and any additional costs could break the camel's back, and we may even see health healthcare deserts where there isn't a, a you know a health facility for for a uh, hundred miles or so. So we uh, we have to be incredibly sensitive on the one hand that there, that healthcare is target rich and resource poor, especially in the long tail of the bulk of health delivery organizations in the U.S. and uh, a belief that if we're over dependent on undependable things, um, you know I, I floated out this controversial line of if we can't afford to protect it, then we can't afford to connect it, which is perhaps if we um, if we are starting to realize the risks of accidents and adversaries like WannaCry potentially um, triggering a crisis of confidence or causing a more risk-averse posture or a retreat from otherwise superior innovations, 
that would have a pretty deleterious effect. So is there some sort of path forward between the current state where we're target-rich and resource-poor and the competing reality that there may need to be some minimum level of hygiene and staffing to safely operate these hyper-connected deliveries? And we struggled with that significantly over the months because the, the ground truth is just uncomfortable. Um, how, do, how would you recommend, any one of you recommend that we confront those competing uh, crews or how would you massage that, that tension? I guess I'll take a stab at it, Josh. Um, Terry, um, I, I, I think you know one of the one, and, and you you accurately portrayed the problem. I think it's it's even bigger than that. In in that, you know, I think it was Mark Andreessen said uh, that software is eating the world. You know, a number yeah. of years ago, and you've seen industry, industry after industry, sort of succumb to software automation and 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 um, you know replacing uh, human labor with with automation. I think we're starting to see that in the healthcare industry. Um, automation of manufacturing, automation in the labs, automation in uh, the hospitals, um, and we still haven't solved the fundamental problem of how to write secure code. Um, so I know in the recommendations we actually called out a much greater focus on secure software development um, mm -hmm. and potentially having something like an underwriter's lab or some mechanism to certify that the software is up to or in line with acceptable standards. There's obviously no guarantee. Nobody can ever say that software will be perfect, but at least to get it to a level that is acceptable for use in, in, um, in clinical environments or in patients. Um, so I think that's one area that the, the, the task force spent a lot of time discussing and there are a lot of opportunities, and there are other industries that have sort of gone through this. The electricity, which we uh, had a pretty long session with uh, members from the um, energy uh, sector, uh, the right. financial sector has done some of that. We spent a lot of time with them as well. And, and so I think there's lessons that can be taken and standards that can be taken from there that can be applied to healthcare. And I think the FDA is actually doing a pretty decent job in trying to uh, bring those to fruition. Indeed, and uh, I, I, I'd like to remind people we don't have to boil the ocean. We can crawl, then walk, then run. There's some short-term, mid-term, and long-term things we can do. Some, to Emery's point, some are going to require some government action. Some of them are going to require, you know, congressional action. Some will require maybe HHS action, but many will, will be doable within the private sector. Um, while he couldn't make this call, Michael McNeil from Phillips um, has been voluntarily doing something innovative that we, we all got pretty quick consensus on, which is that he started publishing uh, essentially a new, an ingredients list for his uh, medical devices. Uh, in other words, a software bill of materials with all the third-party and open-source libraries they use and the version numbers. And the utility of this is uh, at least twofold. One, when someone's purchasing something like a Mayo Clinic or a Cedars-Sinai, they can compare the relative hygiene, uh, cyber hygiene and known vulnerabilities of product A versus B versus C and, and let people spend the money they were already going to spend on uh, less risky investments. Uh, number two, uh, if there is an attack in the wild like a WannaCry or like the, uh, the Hollywood Presbyterian outage due to the SamSam uh, ransomware, um, you know, many people got an FBI bulletin or an NHI stack alert, uh, but they had no idea how to tell if they were affected and where they were affected. So such, such an ingredients list might enable for very prompt and agile identification and remediation to say, okay, I do have three devices with that vulnerability. Let me take them offline and patch them you know, post-haste. 
so that that's kind of a recommendation. Um, what we realize is that's a that's a, a very natural thing to potentially do for not just FDA d devices, but also for e electronic medical records and EHR systems uh, through OCR and others. So that was an example of something that might not be incredibly hard, but might raise the bar significantly, especially on these um, high intent, low capability adversaries that we're worried about that may have the means, motive, and opportunity to take life in healthcare. Or even more uh, more likely is these accidental compromises due to wanna cries, just collateral damage of a, a mass infecting internet worm. Uh, we like to remind everyone that pre um, ma malicious intent is not a prerequisite to harm, and one of our greatest exposures is simply the accidental chatter of the in baseline noise of the internet right now uh, with large-scale attacks like Mirai or WannaCry, uh, which may not be in deliberately trying to harm healthcare, but may have the, the impact nonetheless. Um, I also went probably furthest, my biggest surprise is I went furthest down the rabbit hole on medical devices. And while we've done significant work with the FDA, and the FDA has really demonstrated a lot of leadership here with their pre-market guidance released in 2014, with the first ever safety communication of, of a medical device for purely cybersecurity reasons, in that they sent out notice that a Hospira bedside infusion pumps uh, were vulnerable and could not be remediated uh, back in 2015, and then in 2016, rounding it out with their post-market guidance on what they expect people to do for the ongoing care and feeding. So they have a significant head start there, but as we pulled the thread in the, in the clinical environment, what we found is while we're improving the future supply, of medical device technologies, um, there's a very serious legacy IT problem in the healthcare. And uh, one of my favorite lines from Michael was that while his new devices are great, he can't pry them out of the, the healthcare's cold, dead hands. They're still going to use the old ones until they cease functioning. And that really long tail of low hygiene, uh, vulnerable devices. Uh, we went, I think we must have spent nine months on uh, going really far down the rabbit hole on the wicked problems there of could we do a cash for clunkers like we did for automobiles to maybe get unsafe vehicles and polluting vehicles off the road, you know, at such a time when the incoming supply of medical tech is sufficiently superior to the current supply, such a recommendation is controversial but did make sense economically and public safety-wise uh, in the past, and I think there's a strong argument to do something similar here, um, maybe for devices that meet certain criteria or things we want to incentivize. Uh, but also what we noticed is that when many of these devices are building on Windows operating systems or on Android, a lot of the new devices are built on these commodity operating systems with shorter times to live, shorter support life cycles, and moreover, um, they were really never designed for safety-critical environments where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. Um, there's a, a number of uncomfortable findings there where we may need to incentivize alternative architectures, different support windows, different capital expenditure models. Uh, but even if we just keep bringing in new devices, uh, what we found is um, if it takes six years to bring a new device to market and the average time in the field is 15 or more, that's a 20-year-plus life cycle, and the average Windows operating system isn't supported for more than, say, six or seven years. So we've got a real serious disparate rates of change issue that I think was only possible to uncover through the intense effort of the, of the task force. So there's some private sector things that could be done there, but we also know we're gonna, we may need some sort of cash for clunkers appetite at some future date from Congress uh, and or some fine-tuning to, to command bill of materials and uh, no, uh, 
a discouragement of unsupported operating systems in future medical approval. So uh, those are some of the big surprises. Um, anything you're afraid people will misread or misunderstand from the task force? And I would like to open up to the, the line to questions uh, after this quick round. Uh, so if you have your questions ready, please uh, uh, contact the operator as instructed. Does anybody have anything that they, they fear might be a misinterpretation or an over-application of our report? This is Jackie. I think generically that really anything in the report could be construed as controversial and as really bold. And so, I, you know, what I would like is for people to keep in mind that we're really looking at it with good intentions to try to sort out what are the really big things that we need to do quickly, whether it's from the help of the government or stuff that the industry can do to really help move the needle in solving our cybersecurity crisis that's going to continue until we start doing proactive things at the same time that we're doing reactive things. Indeed. And this is Mark, and I think the key is it really needs to be a public-private partnership. Neither group can do it uh, alone. It's only the discussion and bringing together everybody that's going to result in a solution because private industry can't do it alone, nor can the government mandate it to get it done. So I think we really need to be practical uh, and look at it as that way as the task force was, because that's the only way the solution is going to be reached. Uh, I personally encountered, and I think many of you did as well through some of the interviews and testimonies we did both on the phone and through in person, is that there's a level of exhaustion and fatigue on the part of many of these um, these health delivery professionals. And uh, a fear I have is that while we want to be hard on the problem, we, we, we don't want to be hard on the people. We, we were incredibly impressed with many of the people we interviewed. We have a tremendous empathy for how hard a job they have and how limited their resources have been in the current model. So we're not looking to to bludgeon or punish the, the, these uh, these collaborators. What we want to do is uh, make sure we have eyes wide open on what the risks are, that we render these costs visible, and that we have the tough conversations to figure out which adjustments might be possible. Uh, so I hope any healthcare professionals that, that encounter this report realize we, we had to be candid, honest, forthright, uh, with the best of our ability through our relative expertise not to judge them, but to maybe equip them uh, to, to start improving the situation before things get out of hand. So I, I, I would hope people take it in that spirit and that stride and not look at it as an indictment of uh, people who care deeply about patient care and about advancing the field. Uh, I guess I'd like to ask the operator, uh, can you please open the line for questions? Yes, sir. At this time, we will be opening up for questions. Please press the star key, followed by the one key, on your touch-tone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. Please be sure to introduce yourself when asking a question. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the queue, please press star 2. I guess while we wait for them to ask their questions to the moderator, does anyone else want to build on that last point? We did see some pretty raw emotions. I think the... The, the phrase I heard most from the small, medium, and rural practitioners was, we are not incompetent. We're doing our best. And that really struck, um, it really hit, it hit us hard to know that they're trying the best they can um, and they're doing it within the constraints that they have. 
Well, this, this is Mark, and from the viewpoint of uh, what I do for 90% of my time in quality and safety, it's never judgmental, as you said, Josh, as to where we are now. Where we are is where we are. It's what we can do to improve our performance going forward uh, without trying to assign blame to anybody, because there is no blame. This is, a pro this is a problem that is actually a good problem because we've really achieved great interoperability. We've achieved uh, dissemination of electronic health records throughout the whole country in a rapid amount of time, but that presents new problems, and that's what the way we have to address it. So it's not that people have not been doing their job. It's just this problem now has grown uh, astronomically uh, just because of the fact that we've been successful in really moving this country from a paper-based system to a digital system. Indeed. So it looks like we have our first question. Um, so can we please open the line? Yes, our first question comes from Rich Streeter with Certainty One. Hey there, I was just curious if you guys um, had any discussions or thoughts regarding uh, the HIPAA regulations and whether or not the, the necessity to keep the HIPAA regulations intact limit the ability of um, both uh, producers and users of healthcare information from trying to implement innovative ideas. Thanks. Um, my, my quick stab, but others can join, join in. This is um, HIPAA. One of the things I said on day one is that um, there there may be a false sense of security in that we we have robust HIPAA uh, requirements and audit regimes, which is mostly focused on patient healthcare information. Uh, and the cavalry has lovingly made the joke that we love our privacy. We'd like to be alive to enjoy it. So I think we really expanded the aperture here to include um, patient care delivery, loss of life. Um, economic impact, theft of the robust amount of intellectual property and trade secrets in the pharmaceutical and bio-research parts of the aspect. So we really expanded the definition of, of healthcare risks, but I also believe that that's one of the reasons we talked so much about the need to harmonize and deduplicate and streamline uh, the various competing compliance regimes in state and local laws so that we aren't spending all of our time on the auditor instead of the adversary. Um, anyone want to uh, quickly massage that? Mark, I don't see HIPAA as a major impediment to getting done what we need to do. I think the concern about HIPAA goes around what issues that we address, that we really can't have a, uh, a culture where reporting things gets you into trouble. Right. Uh, don't share information. So sometimes... You know, there are breaches where you're clearly at fault. You know, you had unencrypted laptops that were stolen. Well, clearly that, 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 that's a problem. But many of the issues may not be in your control, uh, and we don't want people not to want to report them only because they're afraid they're going to get some large fine, they're going to get in trouble, and that. So we, you know, much like the airline industry, we need to be open about when things happen. Uh, and so I think if we did that, I think HIPAA would become a minimal problem uh, in terms of uh, trying to correct the, the cybersecurity issues. And this, is, this is Jackie. I, I think HIPAA is really the floor, and where we need to be is the ceiling. So I think some individuals get a false sense of security when they often say, well, I'm HIPAA compliant. So I think HIPAA sets the floor, and there's definitely a, a place for that.
I think as Mark alluded to with the reporting, we actually did uh, invite Office for Civil Rights to talk to us when we were evaluating, and they absolutely shared that, uh, you know, there's no prohibition against, sh you know, sharing information with regulatory agencies or, or law enforcement agencies in order to, you know, discuss your cybersecurity threat. Um, I think in reality it's a fear that the industry has as if they report it that, they'll then be investigated. So I think there's some opportunity from a PR standpoint of just education um, from OCR and others about, um, you know, what it actually means versus what people perceive it to mean. And then, you know, I think we see HIPAA as just the floor to where we need to be and um, often see that it conflicts with state laws that are in place. And that's really where the look needs to be is how do we harmonize those state and federal laws so that folks aren't stressed out about should we comply with HIPAA or should we comply with a, a California law, you know, we're looking at it holistically and appreciating which law we need to comply with in addition to really solving the bigger problem, which is we have to look at it from a risk management, risk analysis perspective and address the highest risk. And if you're doing that, you should be compliant with HIPAA already because it's the floor, not the ceiling. Mm. And, and to add to that, uh, establish, um, you know, a, a healthcare-specific uh, cybersecurity framework for use in addition to looking at the HIPAA security rule. Yeah, indeed, there's, there's quite a bit that we can build upon there. We, we saw um, very light adoption of the NIST cybersecurity framework thus far in healthcare. I think that was one of our first things from NIST with the available data was um, uh, there were some pretty key gaps there. That's why we want to see some more. But we also know that uh, some of the things have to be tailored to safety-critical industries versus maybe financially motivated adversary looking for confidentiality of data. In healthcare, for example, uh, you know, so maybe a, a vulnerability gets a very low score if it's just an availability or denial of service threats versus a, a confidentiality loss or, or code execution threat. But maybe an availability attack on a, a bedside infusion pump could lead to a fatality. So we really have to customize and tailor things like uh, vulnerability scoring systems, which is uh, being worked on and also recommended, and things like uh, more tailored uh, adaptations of this, the NIST cybersecurity framework. Um, it shouldn't, no one should wait for that uh, to occur to start applying key gaps they already have, like an asset and inventory management was one of the huge gaps. But what we, um, we we recognize the need to understand the unique nature of healthcare delivery. Um, if there's one more, uh, I, I don't think we're going to have time left. Is one right in the queue right now? At this time, we have no questions in the okay. queue. Perfect. Uh, and then, so back to let me come full circle for maybe a, a closing thought or or something uh, constructive because uh, this is some very overwhelming information. Um, Emery, when we started with you, you, you correctly reminded us that this isn't all about HHS or uh, it's going to have to take actions on multiple stakeholders' parts. Uh, one of the recommendations I think is fairly interesting and I think uh, we got a glimpse into with the HHS WannaCry response was uh, the notion of maybe having a central coordinator for uh, cyber to be a, a, the, the interface for the private sector and public sector and, and interagency work. Um, so uh, I'm very eager to see once the dust is settled and we have all these congressional hearings, uh, which of the recommendations were most attractive to uh, HHS um, as both the sponsor but also the, the wrangler of us, the motley crew of uh, task force members here. 
um, and what things are, are uh, smart and actionable to do to, to immediately have a positive aspect. I think there's been pretty impressive leadership on uh, the response to WannaCry across HHS, um, and we hope that we can do that even more because the sad truth is we'll see more attacks like this, not fewer. Uh, but uh, does anyone have any closing or positive thoughts on things we could do uh, almost immediately as we further communicate this and engage the multiple stakeholders? Yeah, the one thing I would say is, you know, obviously in the testimony and as a result of WannaCry, you can see that there is a broader engagement from HHS in terms of the outreach during cyber incidents and, and where that's going. I think. You know, as, as, as was mentioned in the testimony today by Mr. Scanlon, that, you know, there is initiative going around the HKIC, the deployment of that, and how that may change some of the dynamics of those relationships. But I also encourage um, the sector to reach out to NHISAC and High Trust and the other ISACs and ISAOs that they work with, you know, and build those relationships now and, and share your thoughts and ideas um, you know, with what you're really looking for because they can't really tailor their material if they don't hear your voice. So yeah. I think that would be a key piece that I'd want to get out. Mm. Anyone else in closing thoughts? I guess one that I could throw in there is uh, given this is a, a congressional task force housed within HHS and certainly has key stakeholders in other areas like NIST and DHS and the White House and other areas that concern public safety or national security or, or whatnot, um, it, it may pass unnoticed by the private sector. And one of the things that I've been most excited about coming from the private sector is many of the IT and cybersecurity innovators have largely ignored healthcare, assuming there was no money or no need or no recognized pain points. I think uh, while the bad news is we've identified several fairly troubling risks, uh, those do create significant opportunity for innovation and private sector solutions to, to fill some of these better identified needs. Um, so there, there could be significant opportunity for innovation and new markets to open up for those that are industrious enough to try. I think what we've done here creates a, a fairly accurate um, and, and fairly comprehensive look at some of these under-addressed or unaddressed challenges. And uh, in a time when we have a, a, a job problem and a time when we have uh, a lack of innovation, uh, that's the fodder for um, a, a lot more people and, and bright ideas being brought to bear. Uh, the necessity is the mother of invention, and boy, do we need some right now. So I'm encouraged at the, the possibility of response for private sector folks that, that give a look through our findings and see opportunity in them. All right, uh, unless anyone else has some parting wisdom or encouragement, uh, I'd just like to thank my panelists for their time today. Um, the, the report, go ahead. Uh, the report has been released since Friday afternoon. We encourage people to look at it. There's some um, bold and uncomfortable findings. There's some bold and uncomfortable uh, responses to those uncomfortable findings. And uh, while I think we've really advanced the conversation in a very poignant way in the face of WannaCry, uh, many of us feel that this isn't the finish line. It may be the starting line for a lot more work to be done in collaboration with the, the private sector, uh, the public sector, and even the, the philanthropic and altruistic sector drawn to the Atlantic Council and, and networks like it. 
Uh, there's some real wicked problems in here. I think we have the metal and the innovation to, to rise to meet them. Now we just need the will to do so. So thank you to the task force members for their, their commitment over the last year plus. Uh, thank you for the members for joining this call. And uh, I will release you to uh, the other affairs of the world. Uh, we hope this is the start of a conversation, not the end, and look forward to working with you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's teleconference. You may now disconnect.